0: Hello, and welcome to episode three of Bond Air. Thank you all for joining us. We are live from the Javits Center, New York Vet. Um, as as always, um, host Jesse Longo, LVT, uh, Medical Operations Manager at Bond Vet. Uh, I am joined with two uh, fantastic ER clinicians that are here to talk a little bit about um, some interesting types of cases. So, uh, I will, I'll introduce our, our friends here. Um, to my left, we have Dr. Jeremy Kimmel uh, ER clinician, uh, currently for BonVet, um, Associate Regional Medical Director. Uh, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having us here. Thank you for being here, Dr. Kimmel Steele. Um, really excited to have, uh, a BonVet rep, uh, come in and, and talk to us about ER. Uh, and to my right, Dr. Tom Taney from Mount Laurel uh, in New Jersey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Excited to be here. Amazing. Excited to have you both. We're we we're talking before the show, I think, um, fast and loose, which is like in the most ER clinician way uh, to kind of structure this conversation. But I think we want to kind of center around some of these uh, atypical um, emergencies of typical cases that we may we find uh, come through the clinic door. So think we're going to focus a little bit around uh, maybe some atypical absence cases, but uh, we may stray here and there uh, depending. So I'll kick it to you, Jeremy, to, to start us off um, with, with some of the prompts that you have.
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll start off by just uh, introducing Tom Taney. So Tom is a, a good friend of mine from vet school. We we know each other um, m- from many late nights studying in uh, in the library at Penn Vet. Just
0: studying, just studying. <laughs> yeah, definitely just studying.
1: <laughs> um, not uh, I think what what sort of um, m- maybe drove us to become ER doctors is the. Uh, is the fact that we did a lot of that stuff last minute. I think we were, were good at sort of pivoting at the last second and, and things coming in and, and just sort of, um, you know, making a plan on the fly. Um, so I definitely saw that in you as a, as a vet student, and I think uh, it's definitely developed over the years that, that we've both been doing this. Um, but, you know, just to give everyone a background on on Tom, he's uh, he's a, right now an ER doctor. He's got a focus on, on echocardiograms, can, can perform echocardiograms, um, but also has a, a real focus on emergency and critical care. Spent some time moonlighting in an ECC residency prior to just starting, um, you know, working in private practice as an ER. And so Tom is, is definitely a go-to for me when I'm on the clinic floor. He's the kind of guy who has every single dose, every single experimental treatment, every single oh, yeah? research paper in his head. um he's definitely someone who can um who can sort of drive some of the more atypical things that we see um so um tom why don't we just get into the case a little bit um
2: thank you that was a great intro yeah now do jeremy now do jeremy no 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 (laughs) (laughs) what can i say on air that won't get him fired (laughs) um
1: so uh, uh tell us a little bit about the like uh the case we prepared, um, you know, how it presented, what the signalment was. Um, what was the first things you noticed in the history and on the physical exam?
2: Yeah, all right. I'll get into it. Um, I think this is a, a very interesting case to talk about because it is one that you really have to to think about the, the things that aren't obvious. It really doesn't read the book in a lot of ways. So um, I'll start off with it. Our name is Leon. It's a nine-year-old male-neutered mixed breed dog. It's a big dog, like 30 kgs. He presented last Christmas Day with a history of just vomiting once, liquid diarrhea since then, not eating, and like increasingly lethargic. No no other significant medical history that the owners could provide us. Hasn't been to the vet for a while. It's that normal dog. So. How, many,
1: how many times do you see a dog that presents like that in a typical day? Like,
2: uh, I don't know, five times a day. Yeah, so five, least, yeah.
1: Five, five patients yeah. on your shift are presenting like that essentially.
2: They're all coming in for that. Yeah. Okay. Not eating lethargy, you know. Yeah.
1: A single single episode of vomiting, yeah. definitely, you know, liquid diarrhea. Um, so that makes up probably if you're seeing 20 cases, that's making up 25% of the cases you're seeing on a given ER shift, you're seeing a dog that presents like this. So Absolutely. nothing, nothing, no big red flags when this one walks through the door.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Great. The red flags do start to show up on the physical exam now. Um, so uh, at least that it's a sick dog. So we're pretty tachycardic, like 160 to 180. So pretty high for a big dog. Pulses pretty poor, hypersalivating, definitely uncomfortable. Just kind of laying on the like stat table where you bring them back. Um, still a bit of a caution and still like growling and tried to snap when you, you know, went to palpate and touch the dog, but definitely not feeling good. So, you know, that sort of immediately starts to get, get you going and think about, you know, what what things need to be done. Obviously, you know, we're thinking about their shock for some reason, right? Yep. Um, and a little soapbox from the ER. You <laughs> don't need a blood pressure to know that this dog's in shock, right? Like, right. I feel like we're always getting blood pressures. Like, you don't need it. You can, you can start making some treatments, and even if the blood pressure is normal, right? Dog's in shock.
1: I think that's um, that's that's I think something that you'll hear a lot from ER yeah. doctors is like, what are the diagnostics you don't need? Um, because there, you know, I think yeah. that there's a bit of like an old school approach with ER doctors. It's like there are so many diagnostics at our at our um, disposal, and so many of them are, are just not necessary with a really good physical exam and a and a great clinical history. Um, Pull and socks, yeah,
2: throw yeah. It in the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: I don't know I think if it reads it only yeah in
2: my uh, it, like. We had one pole socks in my internship at Tufts in the whole ER. And I feel like it never got used. Oh, no. Because it didn't need it, yeah. right?
1: Like I, I do like those ones that have, like, the paddle attachment that you could put yeah. at the base of the tail. Sometimes I feel like that will give you an accurate yeah. reading. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, there's these things are just not made for for people. Um, I did note, like some of those like newer ones, those Massimo. And I, I think we're really getting off track here, but those newer Massimos <laughs> have like four wavelengths of of like light spectrum that's coming out of them. And so I do think you can see, like you can have normal pulse ox on an older one, even though they have like a really high carboxyhemoglobinemia or methemoglobinemia. And these these newer ones can start to to like weed that out with with different uh, spectra of wavelength. That's my soapbox. Did
2: that? Massimo paying for this? <laughs> yeah, <things. laughs> they're here. They're at the show somewhere.
1: <laughs> no, but I, I think that is important because you, you do sometimes, you know, so especially like in here in New York City, we'd see a lot of smoke inhalation. And so mm-hmm. sometimes that does change things. But yep. probably know it already if you're getting a b- blood gas um, at the time of admission.
2: Yeah, yeah. So with this patient, you know, we, right, we started a fluid bolus. We got some blood work going. We gave some methadone and serenia. Um and you know we still have a dog that vomited. Um, it's Christmas, so we went with X-rays. I don't know if that'd be my first choice. Doesn't quite read like an obstruction, but you never know. Um,
1: did you do a? Um, did you do like a fast, fast scan? scan?
2: Okay. Yeah, we did. Also pretty boring. Like no effusion. Maybe the the left ventricle looked a little volume deplete yeah um i would so, think
1: you know large breed dog nine years old comes in with these types of signs tachycardic i'd be like i'm looking for pericardial yeah, effusion.
2: yeah yeah pericardial um or just you know obvious mass or something like that right yeah for sure always a good one to think about pericardial effusion no one ever thinks of it with vomiting you know
1: yeah i think you know i think you'll you'll vomit if you don't feel good yeah, yeah. and I yeah. those
2: dogs just don't feel good for sure um so we got these tests back, and it's it's not all that exciting, right? The CVC, if you're looking at just the, the ranges, right, uh, normal. Everything was within normal limits. Um, the chemistry got a little more interesting, so the CREAT was 2.8. The BUN was 32. I think the cholesterol was a couple points low. Mm-hmm. If you look at the things that... Are normal, but you should still look at them. There were maybe some other interesting things, like the BG was 73, which is still technically normal, but it's kind of low, yeah. right, for a for a dog that's sick in front of you like that.
1: And that's um, coming off of an in-house catalyst machine. Or are yeah. you guys doing it on a glucometer it's on the as catalyst, well? On catalyst. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um, and then the albumin was 2.3, which mm-hmm. is just a point above normal. So make you start thinking about is that actually low, right? You know, um, you have a really dehydrated dog. It seems so. Yep. And then, you know, I guess if you look at the CBC a little, which admittedly at the time I, I didn't really look at the CBC all that much. I on it, Most of the time I look at CBCs and I'm like, okay, great. Like it's normal. It's high. Even when it's a little low, like I feel like it doesn't honestly clue me in that much to what's going on. But mm-hmm. if you started to look at it, the total white count was on the high end of things. It was 15,000. That's like just inside our normal neutrophils. Were like eleven thousand lymphocytes. Were um, like two point eight thousand. So, not you know, it's normal. Um, it's trending towards maybe in some ways being you know a little bit inflamed, a little bit elevated, but mm-hmm. nothing nothing crazy. So, you know, I think I did what most people would do at that point, which is say we probably have like a gastroenteritis case. You know, there's nothing much to go on. The X-rays were totally normal. So we you're saying? It to the hospital. So you're
1: saying you didn't look into the uh, MCHC too closely I on that CBC? Not. I don't think I've okay. ever looked at it. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's one of those R- on RDW. Yeah, you know, I, there there will be a case in which those those values are really important to me because I didn't study all of that in clinpath in vet school to, to <laughs> not know exactly what I'm going to use that for. But to this point, I don't use that much. So you went through, so we have blood work, we have a fast scan, didn't see much. And then you said you were going to take some abdominal radiographs. What did you see on those? Normal. Okay. So Did you do thoracic radiographs as well?
2: Not do thoracic radiographs. Okay. I mean, it certainly is reasonable, but just like everything, you know, I mean, ER and and every job, you know, you're like prioritizing a little bit how to best spend people's money. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't do them. I don't, you know, I feel like you're, it's really rare that you find something.
1: Yeah. In I think,
2: just a dog that's vomiting or having diarrhea.
1: So. Yeah. I think there's like a big concept around diagnostic yield. Yeah. Which is both something that I think, you know, a great ER clinician, even a great general practitioner has a good understanding of. But, you know, at the same time, there's, there's like, I think a big talk in the industry of, of trying not to talk owners into what, and, what they can and can't do mm-hmm. financially. I think that, you know, we should always be offering the, the, uh, gold standard. But I do think sometimes gold standard for veterinary medicine means that we are looking into diagnostic yield for the test. The, the costs are at the, at the time of, of care, at the time of, of delivery of, that, of those, you know, diagnostics and treatments. And so I do think that for me, gold standard looks like, you know, having an understanding of what yield looks like on those diagnostics. And I think that's a separate conversation, but important for like, especially the budding emergency clinician, because you have to make a quick decision. A lot of tests add up really quickly.
2: It's super important. I, I manage a lot of interns and, you know, the hardest thing is being like, what tests do you offer? And you have to offer them sometimes, even when you think, I don't really think we need to do them, right? You got to cover yourself. So there's a real art, I think, that comes down to figuring out like how to offer a test and have people say, I don't think we'll do it, but like not offer it, not offer it in a way that they want to do it, which yeah. I guess sounds weird, but sometimes... You're like, I don't, I don't think you really need this test, but like, I guess I have to, to at least mention it. You right. know what I mean? That's yeah, a I real s- art, I think. And, and sometimes you're wrong, but I think with experience, you know, you, you're wrong less. So yeah, I think, and, yeah. and I
1: think the key is that you're really just putting more emphasis on the test that you think will have more yield. It's not that you're trying to avoid exactly. tests altogether. Yeah, exactly. Um, and exactly. that's a, that's an important, I think, call out.
2: Yeah. And So I think this case, you know, where it does start to get more interesting and we have to start thinking about more and think more about medicine than like, all right, we've got a really dehydrated gastroenteritis case. Um, Couldn't get urine at the time. Bladder was really small, but mildly elevated kidney values, I think, dehydration. Um, So this dog got another 50 mils per keg of boluses um, over the next two hours or so. And we finally did get a blood pressure and it was 70. Um, and the heart rate was about 100 at that time. And the dog still just looks terrible. So at that point is when you do start being like, what what am I missing here, right? Like yep. the dog's PCV was 44. It's hard to imagine 60 mils per keg of crystalloids. Later, you're not getting any, you know. Reasonable response for a dog who's just dehydrated, right. who didn't even look that dehydrated on blood work. Right. So, you know, then you start thinking. And for me, that probably means repeating something like a fast scan. You know, we um, people forget to do that a lot. There's things can change dramatically. You know, you will catch a lot of septic abdomens that had no effusion when you started, um, and then they'll make some when you've given them fluid. So, recheck some blood work, see like, where has my PCV gone? Are my kidney values better? Um, maybe think about an albumin, right? Because maybe this dog needs like some colloidal support to fix the blood pressure because that albumin was a little low. And then for me, you know, I also started to look a little more at at the blood work and some of those things and, you know, noted that, hey, this dog doesn't have a stress leukogram. It's, uh, if anything, its lymphocytes are kind of way too high you right. know, for a sick dog. So which we can talk about a little later, but it's actually probably one of the more important things to look at for atypical Addisonian dogs. Um, so we ran a cortisol, which we have an in-house cortisol. Um, I, I've always had reasonable results. I know some people have said, you know, our in-ho- in-house cortisols maybe aren't that accurate. I don't know if you guys run them, but
1: I think we have them in uh, in like yeah. one or two of our clinics. Yeah. yeah. It's it's just basically a slide in an yeah. IX catalyst, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah.
2: But we we ran it and it was less than 0.5. So at that point, I start thinking more, you know, about uh, something like Addison's, which in this case would have to be atypical. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just, you know, it, it's atypical as a, as a term for Addison's where they don't have the classic electrolyte changes. Um, yeah. So I treated it and, you know, it's a little... Little scary to start treatment, I guess, and I feel like people are scared of steroids, maybe more than they should be. You know, I think there's a real fear that like if you give something steroids when you shouldn't, that's not a great thing, but you also have to be willing to do it when it's when it's time to do it. So, you know, we gave a dose of DEXSP and we did an ACTH STIM and this patient did great. Like the BP quickly stabilized to ninety hundred Doug was eating and trying to kill everyone like 12 hours later. had to go on a Dextome CRI. That's and great. And get out of the hospital. <laughs> so, and then we got our stim back like two days later at this point because uh, it was Christmas and the stim was, was consistent with, with Addison's disease. So um, it was a good case. And, I mean, they are super rewarding to treat, you know, it's kind of the nice thing. Yeah,
1: I think there's um, a couple of good points to pull from from this uh, conversation. One is, you know, as a as an ER clinician, one of the things that we think about with with Addison's disease or Addisonian crises is that the easiest way to figure it out is with the electrolyte abnormalities. There's very little that's going to cause you know a sodium potassium ratio to plummet the way that that Addison's does. In fact, I think there's nothing. Um,
2: there are some things.
1: Uh, cool, let's talk about it. Yeah, that. <laughs> what, what, what,
2: what? What? I've actually seen some. So, right, the, the classic, you know, we talk about the sodium-potassium ratio being less than 27. You should you should definitely be thinking about it. Being less than 20 is highly concerning for it. Um, but I have seen some cases that weren't Addison's that were less than 20. Um, the number one that I can think of is a dog that was just literally, like, riddled with whipworms. Like, we found them on a fecal smear. Just okay. on a oh, wow. slide, like whipworm eggs everywhere, um, and that was, you know, so that's the classic pseudo Addisonian case. So don't forget about that yeah. one. It's definitely a zebra, but you should look for it.
1: Yeah. What about like um this is um just yeah. I think I can answer my own question, but throw it out there. But a uh, like a urinary obstruction. So we see sometimes really high um, so, uh, potassium, but usually you'll see the sodium climb with it. Yeah. Um, can you have you ever seen a urinary obstruction present that way
2: i have not i do think um you'll sometimes see uh diabetics which hopefully that will clue you in that you're not dealing with an addisonian but diabetics frequently have a ratio that's really off because their sodium is like artifactually lowered by all the, the glucose and sometimes they seem to have a high potassium too um it's probably not really that high but it'll read high initially so diabetics um Patients in heart failure again probably a different presentation for the most part. Yep, uh, I have seen a couple septic abdomens that had pretty interesting electrolyte changes, and I know that perforated duodenal ulcers are like it's written about that they can sort of mirror these changes for some reason. So um, there are other things to think about, but
1: can we um, can we pull back to yeah. the um, to the um, in clinic cortisol testing. I think that's yeah. obviously a, a huge game changer in the in the trajectory of this case um, for a variety of reasons, but at least it helps to confirm some of the things you start to think yeah. about when you're seeing the lack of the stress leukogram, you're seeing you know, sort of borderline hypoglycemia. And so you're feeling really probably much better about treating ACTH stimming and getting the dog out of the, the hospital. Um, what other types of like table side or clinic side floor side tests do you think are, are really necessary for, for an ER clinician? I'll throw one out. I think for, you know, a respiratory cat that comes in, I really like to have the, um, you know, quick BNP testing. And I think that's the only time I like to use that. I'm not really sure what, what to make of that test otherwise. I'm, I see you, I you think nodding.
2: I agree with that. Um, truthfully it's, I don't find it that useful because I'm really good at assessing left atrial size, but like I got trained in that. So that's, you know, different, but for someone who's not like, yeah, I think we don't run enough of them because it's a great test. And honestly I do think about it. Uh, definitely. I think about it in cases where, Uh, Let's say you couldn't look at the left atrial size. I think it should always be there if your x-rays are suggestive of heart failure, Um, just to confirm things. If you're not good with an ultrasound, um, Mm -hmm. you don't have cardio readily available. Reason for that, I do feel like every case of like pneumonia that I've ever seen in a cat has been diagnosed heart failure on the x-rays first, like almost every case, because it's just the most common reason that cats have x-rays that look that way. Right. Um, especially cats who don't have pleural effusion. Like if I see that, I, I might even run a BNP because it's pretty weird. Like we see it, but most cats will have at least a little pleural mm-hmm. effusion with heart failure, whereas our pneumonias and things like that that can look like, look like an alveolar pattern on x-rays, the BNP, you know, will be normal. And obviously you have to, you have to reconsider your diagnosis if you're looking at a, a BNP that's normal and you're saying it has left-sided failure. They will be normal in some right-sided cases, though, which is something right. to think about. But, but, yeah, it's a great test for, um, you know, a respiratory distress cat for sure.
1: Yeah, what about what other tests are sort of at your, with taking echocardiograms yeah. off the table for you? Um, yeah. Because that's obviously something you yeah. can do that not every other yeah. ER clinician can. But what what other types of stuff are sort of necessities for you as far as, far as diagnostic testing that can start to weed out some of these, you know, t- cases that go borderline yeah. in two directions, right? We talked about this case being, you know, presenting exactly like your average gastroenteritis, gastroenterocolitis, and it turned out it's atypical Addison's, mm-hmm. Addison's disease. So what other types of tests do you have?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um. I think that an ultrasound, aside from echoes, is still one of the most useful things, right? You know that almost every time if you see, like, lines of fluid in a cat's lungs, it's almost always heart failure. Taking aside those rare cases, like, you can make, you know, make these diagnoses almost just based on those findings, just the most likely thing. Um, I think, you know, you were right. You picked up the probe because the first thing in your mind is, uh, you know, ruling out pericardial fusion, and, and I scan... I scan every case just cause I want to, I want to look and see. Um, but yeah, things like that where you just need to, to make some really quick rule outs. Like we've absolutely gotten cases referred in, you know, being a referral hospital that the diagnosis could be made with, with an ultrasound probably by anyone, you know, like pericardial effusions, but isn't, isn't done cause it's just not on your radar. Um, I teach my interns to always look at the heart first because even those pericardial fu- effusion cases, you'll look at the belly, there'll be fluid and then they stop. They're like, all right. right, great. There's, there's fluid in the belly. Like let's get a sample. And then they're like, Oh, it's, it's clear. Like let's figure it out. It's not a hemoabdomen and they're missing yeah the pericardial fusion. So exactly, I think, you know, it's just remembering how the steps maybe to, to take, which just takes time and also, you know, I know that mistake because I've made that mistake and now yep. I teach people not to make it. But um, but yeah, I think that's that's the number one test. I couldn't I couldn't work anywhere ER without an ultrasound, that's for sure. Yeah,
1: um, You're of a new generation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say that's like something I feel like in just like recent years has been like an essential part of any like PE. It's that's just unique. like any time a case comes back probe going on and, and, and again, like starting up at the, the heart and working yeah. backwards really makes sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, they, they used to call the, the FAST exam comes from the acronym focal assessment using sonography for, for trauma, which is uh yeah. comes from in a, the human emergency room. But you know, there's been a, like a lot of push to, to change the T to triage because us ER doctors are tracking. using tracking or, or tracking is yeah. that's even newer.
2: Yeah. Mm. Um, Keep adding T's.
0: Yeah. It's a TT. Yeah.
2: I do want to back up to the cortisol a little because we actually got rid of our in-house cortisols Uh because people weren't, weren't happy that they had some like differences between the reference lab. And I don't, I I actually think in these cases they're helpful, but it's important to think, you know, when you have a critically ill dog in front of you, like don't, don't send a cortisol out if that's what you have, like do the, do the stem, right? Because... Uh you're going to want to start treating them. Um, You know, cortisol is a great screening test, and I use it all the time for cases that I don't really think have Addison's. But if you have the dog that you're very concerned about Addison's, send the stem so you can get the results back in a timely fashion. Plus, we have to remember, right, we're going to start them on a steroid. You can give them all the dexamethasone you want without affecting the stem. But if you start giving Pred, you've kind of, you know, ruined the the whole test and you're gonna have to stop it if you want to actually confirm which confirming is pretty important for a lifelong illness right so yeah i think the cortisols are great they definitely make you feel more confident if you have an in-house one you don't need it like i would have given this dog i would have given this dog a steroid i might have looked a little harder when i had availability like uh you know potentially a a full abdominal ultrasound, you know, I would have looked a little harder probably before just saying it's it's most likely Addison's, but I would have given the steroids. Um, if only just because I think a lot of the other things that make a dog, you know, uh, hypotensive and not getting fixed, like they don't, they don't hate steroids either necessarily. So if you're suspecting it's atypical Addison's things are fitting, um, you know worst case, like you gave it to a septic dog, your surgeon might not be happy if they go do an RNA, but ultimately steroids and sepsis are you know they're used, and yeah. uh, you know that's different people have different opinions on doses and how to use them, but the point is you haven't like you haven't like killed a dog with it by giving it one dose of dexsp right? Like right you just kind of have to be not scared sometimes to do things like that.
1: What about, so when you gave it, you, you weren't 100% sure of your diagnosis to that point?
2: No, because 21, 21% of dogs with not with GI illness that's non-adrenal will have a cortisol less than 2. Right. It's usually not less than 0.5. I think if it's less than 1, studies have shown it's a lot more suggestive that it's Addison's, but um, you still don't know, right? So it's just a... Were there points you in a direction.
1: Were there any other samples you took before giving the steroids? Like sometimes when I was in the ER working at night, I would yeah. just try to take every possible sample, culture every hole that I could because I would be like, before I put in the steroids or before I gave the antibiotics, I'd want to make sure I have every sample for the like medicine specialist or the criticalist who's going to take over in the morning.
2: Yeah. I mean, I always like, I'm like you. Yeah. I want to have everything when I have them pull, the nurses pull blood. Like I'm like, pull a red top and a purple top to hold, um, get some urine like even if we don't submit it it's worth having before you've given antibiotics things like that um i think it i think i might have given this dog antibiotics too if i didn't have an in-house cortisol just to to cover right because yeah. uh you don't want to be sitting on a case that was actually like septic or something like that and having waited uh, yeah
1: like it could be that you um if you would have caught this case 12 hours earlier, like it's neutrophils could have been through the roof and now we've like used yeah. all of them. And so it's actually in the process of falling. And so 15,000 looks normal or whatever it was. You said 12,000, yeah. that might've looked somewhat, somewhat normal, but it's like in a stage of where the neutrophils could be, you know? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the, a good call out.
2: For sure. I do think uh, I was going to talk about this, but I'll bring it up. The lymphocytes that is actually very predictive. If it's like over two thousand, it's pretty suggestive. If it's over three, and we were almost there, like in a dog that's sick with GI illness, like that's that's even more concerning for Addison's. Not a lot of things uh, don't drive down your lymphocytes the way that a, an an Addisonian well, dog will. Like, why keep don't them you up.
1: why don't you draw that back even a little bit further? Let's yeah. just quickly talk about stress leukograms. So. You know, we're expecting we're not going to see very, we're going to see low levels of lymphocytes and eosinophils. We're going to see higher levels of monocytes and neutrophils. Um, And that's what we're expecting to see on most of the patients that come through our doors. I mean, they're animals after all. And so they tend to be stressed as they're coming in. So that's a stress leukogram. So like, I think, you know, we were talking about the CBC, we're constantly looking at the CBC for things outside of the reference range. I would say if there's ever a test that looking within the reference range is important, it's a CBC, right? Mm -hmm. I think you argued a little bit for BUN, creatinine, albumin; those yeah. things are 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 good too. Sometimes I can kind of see those with trends in this in the like if you just sort of look at the the trend line there. But um, definitely CBC is one of those places I'm I'm looking at the values specifically every single time.
2: What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I I think it's across the board. You have to actually look at your numbers. Um, that's you can't just look for the abnormal, and sometimes it's hard when you're in a busy clinic day or in the ER, you're just going to go down and look. But yeah, um, we uh, we had a great example of that a few times. Our EPOC would occasionally read where it didn't, it showed you not the reference ranges, but like every value it could measure. And it did this for like a day. So you would just, so it's a blood gas analyzer. So people would get gases and then they'd see no red, you know, because it was all within what the machine yeah. can read. And a lot like patients with horrible, like changes on their epochs were just written as like no significant findings, yeah, because that's what we do, yeah, right? Yeah. That's what we're trained for. So if you start looking, you know, at the specifics, that won't that won't happen to you, hopefully. So I'm
1: I'm curious, Jesse. You you worked in an ER yeah. in the past, yes. Um, like from from a tec- technical standpoint, I think sometimes the nurses are the first to pick up on some of these like slightly different cases. Yeah. Um, And I think that, you know, we, we didn't even talk about that. I think we're, you know, Tom's quite cerebral and and has a good understanding of the, um, of the data, the the papers and things like that. But I I can probably say there's been over a hundred times where a nurse has caught something that's just like, you know, I know you're thinking you're going down this road and I, I agree with you, but like this one thing doesn't, fit the picture mm. you know like i'm treating this i'm standing over the dog and it's changing in ways that it doesn't normally change when we've done this in the past mm-hmm. um and so i'm like curious if there's you know, like an example you can think of or 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 just like even you know sometimes you've worked with probably like less experienced vets and, and ways that you've you've jumped in from the nursing
2: side some great things going on with goats yeah there's a you.
0: goat parade behind you, Any, um, you said? but uh no i i mean i think i yeah i think as an as an er technician um, like, helping oversee some of these cases with the vets, especially, to, like, to your point, new um, new veterinarians um, coming through in ER, uh, you do tend to um, notice when, uh, like, a, a doctor will kind of get fixated on, on, like, the diagnosis that they're kind of predicting and then kind of trying to lead themselves towards that diagnosis based on um, either the, the tests that they're running or the recommendations that they're making. And I think um, what is... What what was most difficult for for me as a technician, uh, eventually, just like I think it comes from experience of just like seeing these types of cases. To your point of like, hey, I've seen I've seen this X case, and we've ran these tests before, and all of a sudden, it's not really um, it's not clicking. And especially in an ER setting where you're managing four or five cases at one time, um, and I've been with this patient since it got in. Um, it's it's I think. It's very it's very important for the technician to kind of to vocalize that, but it, it does take some time to gain that confidence to be like, hey, I um, I'm seeing some some differences here. Maybe we can rethink. And I think that that's that partnership with a tech and you uh, an ER, ER clinician is something that like. When, you, when you're on the same page and you're, and you're vibing in that way, it's something that's, like, really, it helps the the case mix because, again, it's, like, you you get a case and, and you start uh, kind of going down a road in your head of what you're thinking it's going to be and it ends up being something completely different and kind of knocks you off that course. So um, having a technician there and being able to collaborate with them seems to be pretty uh, important to these types of cases. They're,
2: they're an incredible resource. Yeah, I mean... Vet that, techs, like a good vet tech will, will find things on the physical that you missed because you looked for... 30 seconds and you've been sitting with the patient right for for hours now um and and just like years of experience in like yeah. pattern recognition like that's a lot of what we do right is across the board is pattern recognition yeah, and I think, I think they're a good vet tech is really good at that
1: yeah for sure yeah and and i and and to take that one step further a really good er doctor is the one that makes space for the, the nurses around them to have opinions as well and so um, you know that's one of the things like as as a uh, working in a in a place as an er doctor that had interns now working at Bonvet where there's a lot of mentorship happening i think there's you know a big a, a big um, like lesson to learn that there's mm-hmm. there you need to make space for, um, for the nurses' opinions, your veterinary assistant's opinions. Obviously, the front desk. Like everybody is sort of working as a team. And I think certainly as you leave vet school, you're so excited to be the doctor that you want to be the doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I think being the doctor is actually letting the whole team fly and you get to just coordinate from behind the scenes. And I know that's, you know, sort of tangential to what we're talking about, but it's, it's key, like in these types of cases where we're not seeing things that, that fit every single pattern, every single uh, textbook article about it, then you need the whole team to sort of be working together to try to come to a diagnosis. So super helpful.
0: Hold you, hold you honest to yourself. Um, We are running up on time. Um, but I want to give, give each of you the floor to kind of have some closing thoughts if you'd like to, to add some. Yeah. I mean, I think that if
2: we're talking about atypical cases, atypical Addison's in particular, like, um, it just, sometimes you really have to remember to take a step back and go back and, and look at things, right? Like I would have treated this dog potentially incorrectly if I didn't really go back and look at the, you know. The actual blood work like literally was zeroing in on small changes and being like this yeah this sort of fits it doesn't fit in a lot of ways with Addison's disease but there are enough things that fit that will lead you to to run run the test so I mean I think it's just remembering those things we like to move really fast we like to you know we like to get the diagnosis and once we get it Sometimes hard to change your mind about it, yeah. right? And just like you were sort of saying, sometimes you need someone to remind you to step back. But like, yeah, you just have to to take that time. And some of it comes with experience. Some of it is just just you know actually remembering to sit down, relook over the blood work, write out like a a differential list, even or or at least just run through it in your head. You know, like I pick up books all the time for different things just to make sure I am not forgetting that one. That one differential that I never think about, you know, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, a, you know, a, a key takeaway. Like don't, you don't want to be the guy who completely missed uh, atypical Addison's and has the dog on pressers and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And someone comes in the next day and it's like, oh, let's run a cortisol, you know, Like <laughs> yeah. you don't want to be that guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I tell uh, I've I've told interns this for years, and I certainly say this a lot in our in our bond vet clinics. Is like be your own skeptic, um, you know, be skeptical of the decision use the decision and the diagnoses that you've come to, um, so that you can um, question, you know, is this, is this right? I mean, sometimes it's fits and you've diagnosed atypical Addison's and you're still asking your question, yourself a question, like, is it truly atypical Addison's? And like, you know, it responds to everything and fine, you can feel really good. But I think, you know, every day in every situation, I'm, I'm still, you know, somewhat skeptical of my own decision-making and that helps me, you know, drive to be a little bit better. So that's, um, that's, that's my thoughts on that. And I think, you know, just in general, I think there needs to, uh, I, I, Love working in the ER for a lot of different reasons. So my closing thoughts are, it's just, um, it's just a really exciting place where you can have um, such a huge variety of cases and get to do a lot of different things. And I think you know Tom and I are both ER doctors, and and probably would manage in an ER very differently. Which is also quite interesting. Like I think we were friendly because we fit different ER molds. I'm definitely more procedural and and um, and looking for you know trauma and trauma surgery. And and Tom's sort of more you know like looking at the you know significant critical cases that require ten or fifteen CRIs and syringe pumps and (laughs) and all that stuff. So (laughs) I do like um, that. um, So yeah, I just think there's a lot of space in the ER world.
2: It's consistently humbling too. This is actually one, if we have time, one, addison's case that really humbled me recently so a one of our interns had this typical addisonian case and it had like neutropenia low blood sugar bad diarrhea they ended up getting a blood smear and they found intracellular bacteria like on a blood smear which is insane yeah like i didn't even think that was possible honestly in like a live animal but we had an addisonian that was also septic and like if honestly if she had she was working with a different doctor on the case, but like, even when she mentioned it to me, I was like, I was like, that's like, not even possible. But you know, it was. And and if you'd come to me during the, that shift, I would have been like, this dog's not septic. It's just Addisonian, you know, and I would have been a hundred percent wrong. So <laughs> always keep those things in mind, right? You know. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Um, awesome.
0: Thanks well, for coming in, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, that has been episode three of our podcast. Uh, we will be live again in like about an hour and a half uh, talking to Dr. Philippa Pavia and Renee McDuel about surgery things. So tune into that. I don't know what cameras on right now, but one of those. Um, again, thank you to the fantastic ER clinicians to come in and discuss some, um, I, I mean, I think we went off the rails a little bit there, but I think it was it was really fun to, to be able to, to hear you guys. Um, talk about what you're so passionate about. So thank you both again, and we'll see everybody soon. Thank you for having me.